by supporting KPFA today. Greetings, feminists, women and men both. The founder of Bitch Magazine is calling you out. In her bold new book, We Were Feminists Once. Andy Zeisler is arguing that pop culture has co-opted the feminist movement. Andy joins poet and activist Aya de Leon in a free-form discussion hosted by Sabrina Jacobs. This KPFA benefit happens Wednesday, March 29th, 7.30 p.m. at the Hillside Club, 2286 Cedar Street in Berkeley. Tickets at brownpapertickets.com and indie bookshops. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up. In darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is March 14th, 2017. <laughs> I've been gone so long, I, I can't get things sorted out here. I've got a list of 18 things to deal with, but, uh, I, I've got to try. I've got to try to focus. That's the first rule for radio is focus. Let's see. Aha. Uh-huh. Let's see, this Saturday, coming up at uh, 7 o'clock, there's a reading. I'll be there. It's uh, uh, an annual event. It's at Sconehenge. That's S-C-O-N-E, Sconehenge. It's a cafe on the corner of Shattuck and Stewart here in Berkeley. Uh, Yes, indeed, uh... If you know where the Berkeley Bowl is, you can find the Sconehenge Cafe. It's, let's see, behind the Walgreens there, but it's uh, Shattuck and Stewart, 7 o'clock. And what we do is we all take turns and read Allen Ginsberg's Howl because that's the place, the, well, it, that space. It was a theater in the old days, and that's where Howell was read for the first time. It's a kind of a fun thing, uh, and as I said, uh, I'll I'll come too. Last year, I <laughs> I did a reading of sorts, and this year, I'll look for one of my body monologues, or uh, actually, I got a great poem about the fall of western civilization that's always uh, that's always a good a good subject uh too many things here coming in compliments of a fan it says oh thank you for the 
T-shirt, Dale. Dale sent me a T-shirt. I don't know if he wants his last name used, but I just wanted to be sure and thank him. Uh, now, I made a terrible mistake last night. I was trying to take some notes that would help people, uh, you know, find some distraction, something to enjoy and get, get away from the trumpery. And I made a mistake, and I turned on HBO, and I saw a two-hour documentary that was so rough, I don't know what possessed me. I couldn't, well, I, I watched it with uh, one eye closed. It, I couldn't sleep all night. It's called Cries from Syria. It was on from 10 to 12 last night on HBO, and I'm sure it's it's still there on demand, just... Just, uh, oh dear, I I just wanted to give out a warning. If you have children, uh, I would watch this alone first before you let children see it. When I saw it, I remembered long ago the first time I saw films from Vietnam. Uh, you know, one of our, one of our, uh, <laughs> Military, yes, strafing the uh, the uh, citizens called peasants, yes, the Vietnamese out trying to deal with the rice and uh, oh, some guy came flying over and said, "Wee, look at a brun," you know. I I just I just remember getting sick. Uh, that would have been 1965, but. Obviously, I'm becoming an awful bore with this deja vu all over again, you know. Been there, done that. <laughs> I thought, I thought we could do something else by now, but, uh, anyway, the show is called Cries from Syria, and, uh, pardon my cliche, but we know that those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities and that's exactly what we see in this show uh, uh, ha, ha, the horrendous torture you know uh, pregnant women ripped apart infants killed in front of the family uh, oh one I think I gave up at one point some some torturer set a man's head on fire and I thought uh, what what on earth what would my parents say how would they feel about this uh, after all my mother and father were born in 1902 and then I thought hell my father my father wouldn't have been uh, well might have been horrified but he might not have been surprised he spent World War II out in the Pacific uh, on a uh, uh, blood-soaked hospital ship. He told me that after some of the bombings, the ship, the inside, he said it looked like spaghetti dripping from the walls. But uh, I don't. I know it's a downer. I don't mean to to go on about it. Uh, I'll. You know, I'll get back to that someday. Uh, this whole business of whether it does us any good to see the horrors, uh, you know, to make films. Uh, this show, Cries from Syria, is uh, 
I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure the cinematographers, there were about 30 of them, mean, mean to, uh, show us the worst. And uh, I think they assume that this will change things. You know, uh, children eating leaves off the trees, people starving, these elegant, charming children explaining about, well, about the death of the grown-ups, some from starvation. Uh, so, so strong little children are, these little girls toting the water around. And one of them, she says, we used to have this thing where, you know, you, you could just turn on the tap and it would be water then. Uh, little boy has a picture and he has uh, two armies. He has the free army on one side of his picture and the uh, Assyrian army uh al-Assad's army on the other side and he says and I'm the one in in the middle anyway uh I gave up and stopped watching uh during the hideous scenes when we saw what happened to the the victims those who uh suffered from the chemical warfare sarin gas uh at some point there was an agreement to stop using chemical weapons but they did not include chlorine gas on the list of <laughs> things not to do. And the, well, the blood-soaked hospitals. Uh, I don't know. I I saw one young boy, an adolescent boy, and uh, he said, well, he said, uh, we came here. To die with honor. And I thought, well, that's silly. I always think it's silly when when uh, young men throw themselves into the fire, you know, simply walk into hell and go up in flames. But the more I thought about it and thinking of what had happened to so many others, those victims of the chemical weapons and... I thought, yeah, maybe maybe that makes more sense. Maybe that makes more sense to go walk right into the middle of it. It's certainly better than just being boiled. There's no honor in that. Uh, anyway, uh, just one one positive thing in the Syria documentary. There's a group called the White Helmet. These are the good guys. Uh, first responders, I guess, they're teachers, doctors, carpenters, and they dig through the rubble. They find all these uh, people surviving one little baby a month old. Three hours she'd been in the rubble, and they finally got her out. Uh, uh-huh, and it went on and on. Uh, most of the uh, people interviewed insisted that... Um, ISIS was only 2 or 3% of the violence and that the al-Assad government was the rest of it. Uh, he said it's a, a lie to say that they're fighting ISIS. Uh, Doctors Without Borders documents the same things. Uh, at some point, I I turned off the sound. I couldn't stand the screaming. Uh, and there was at one point Late in the show, it's two hours long, uh, in this documentary, we see the Turkish army, uh, 
they decided to shoot some of the refugees. Uh, we see the refugees fleeing. Um, uh, uh, I thought of the Katrina refugees. Remember the point at which uh, the cops down in New Orleans, they decided to shoot some people who, you know, were moving to the wrong side of the river or the wrong part of town. It looked looked like uh, marauders. Anyway, uh, the suffering of these refugees is somehow colder than the the incredible uh, bombing by the Russians and so forth. Uh, the refugees uh, got to Turkey and a little girl says they just threw us pieces of bread like, like we were dogs. Uh, the sea voyage, I'm sure everyone has seen the picture of the little boy dead on the beach. Uh, in this in this documentary, there are scores of children, a few children, let's see. There's a landing on Samos in Greece. Pictures of the dead again. Uh, people saying that they had no proper papers, and that's when families were split up. And uh, let's see, Helen Mirren is the narrator. Cher sings some of the songs. Body count was 600,000 dead. That's more than half a million. Let's see, that would be, if you thought of the 9-11 hit back east, okay, that would be 200 9-11s, okay? Some people like to measure and have body counts anyway. We have 7 million people displaced, uh, uh, almost half of those, let's see, they're in the surrounding countries. Uh, a million have managed to get inside Europe. The goal is pretty much, uh, well, Germany is the one we see in this show. Um, the songs, yes, the world gone off the rails. Prayer for the world. Uh, I, I just, I, I just, find that it's no use my trying to talk about uh, horror films. I think I've got to stop that and do the uh, do the good guys and let it go at that. Uh, I went to see the play Row. <laughs> yes, I thought that was the thing to do. Uh, it opened last Friday and uh, I was just so glad that the Berkeley audiences showed up and uh, that they were as excited as I was. They cheered. The play Row is a study, uh, well, uh, more than a study. It's a dramatization of the famous case, the famous case of Roe versus Wade. Back in 1973, women got the, the right to uh, have an legal abortion uh, the Supreme Court said it's okay Jane Roe was the individual who brought the suit her name is actually Norma McCorvey and her two lawyers Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey Sarah Weddington is the uh, major character uh, they argued the case and uh, uh, <laughs> uh the precedent was set, we thought, for all time, but uh, the decision was not uh, 
compromised, well, not until 1980. That's when they decided, Congress decided, uh, under the Social Security Act, blah, blah. They, they said, no, 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 no money for Medicaid abortions. And then they began shipping away. There was something called the Webster decision, 1989. At that time, the Supreme Court allowed, uh, access, access to abortions to be determined by the individual states. Wow, now, <laughs> now you know, that was chaos. At that time, Justice Harry Blackmun wrote in his dissenting opinion, he said, the handwriting is on the wall, the signs are evident and very ominous, and a chill wind blows. Yeah, that's a quote. That's a nice quote from Justice Blackman. What else does he say? He says that, yes, he says that this throws back into darkness the hopes and visions of every woman. How about that? <laughs> anyway, uh, chaos, chaos. Texas is lately causing the most confusion, uh, uh, and you know how it is, the fear of all the hassle and, and the, uh, the protests at the clinics. This prevents so many women from seeking help in the first place. Uh, now, Harry Blackman wrote a dissenting opinion in 1989, right, at the time of the Webster decision, and, uh, I remember uh, after he did that, Bill Moyers did a terrific special on television. Uh, back in the day, that was, uh, he explained that if you're going to outlaw half the population, you just cannot pretend that women are full citizens uh, and that we have our full civil rights. Remember, we still do not have the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. Most people believe that, uh, you know, there's nothing to worry about because, of course, the will of the people would protect us. <laughs> you know, never let it happen. Uh, mm -hmm. Back in 1989, Bella Abzug spoke against the Webster decision. She said, it's not the flag that's burning, it's the Constitution. We know today that access to abortion is getting harder and harder. Even before Webster, the backlash was just busy. They were busy, 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 you know. Uh, there's a book called Backlash by Susan Faludi. Uh, she's, she's due in town. She has another book, uh, called In the Dark Room. Chris Welch is hosting that. That's May the 2nd, a Tuesday, uh, Hillside Club. Susan is, uh, she's written a book about her her personal life uh i think that backlash is the book to start with she's an important journalist susan faludi uh uh it's the best record of those times um here we go she writes in backlash oh wait a minute she has a great quote <laughs> from a guy called uh george gilder uh reagan uh reagan uh uh, advisor. Mm -hmm. Let's see. 
George Gilder, he writes, uh, well, he's expressing his fear that, well, he says, uh, much of the male anxiety that underlies the, uh, the, well, I guess I don't want to read this because it's so, um, people will say that I'm male bashing. Oh, dear. Times do change. Uh, uh, George Gilder writes that the feminist successful campaign for birth control and abortion shifts the balance of sexual power further in favor of women. It depletes male patriarchal potency and reduces the penis to an empty plaything. Now you see how this would be uh, upsetting. That was in a book, 1986, Men and Marriage. Uh, oh, dear, dear, dear. Uh, listen, it was pretty, pretty awful in the 80s. 1987, yes, is what Susan Faludi says. 85% of the nation's counties in 1987 had no abortion services. The American Bar Association voted to rescind its pro-choice policy in 1990, only seven months after it had approved it. <laughs> the Bar Association goes back and forth and back and forth. Okay, Bishop Rene. Garcida of Corpus Christi, Texas, excommunicated the director of a family planning center in town. <laughs> Often in the battle over the fetus's right to life in the 80s, the patriarch, uh, patriarch's eclipsed ability to make family decisions figured as a bitter subtext. Tell me about it. It's not a subtext anymore. He's right out there saying it. Uh, what has the prez done? Oh, the first day he, uh, he canceled the, uh, the, uh, funding for foreign women's health clinics. Let's see how he did that. Uh, he banned foreign aid for abortion counseling. Now, you would think that that wasn't, uh, uh huh, wasn't a total a total ban on women's health centers, but I think that maybe any any woman's health clinic, uh, I guess they could put a sign out front and say, no, we don't do abortions and we do not ever advise women to have them. And then they could take care of the women's other health needs. It's getting so, so crazy-making. Anyway, what was so exciting about this play, Roe, that I saw last Friday night uh, was the enthusiasm of the audience. People are really up on this stuff, you know. God, I hope they go to Washington. They uh, participated. They joined the actors. <laughs> they were the actors were speaking very often to the audience directly, you know, as if they were addressing the court or making public speeches or TV interviews. Uh, theater audience responded as energetically as the reality would demand. They they gave the cast a standing ovation. Uh, the playwright, uh, her name is uh, uh, Loomis, Loomis, Loomis. Uh, she's <laughs> she's a beauty. Yes, I was looking at her story, but never mind. Uh, 
she's done a good job of giving us a drama. And it isn't just a question of showing both sides. Uh, she just takes the lives of two women, uh, Jane Roe and the, the woman lawyer, and she juxtaposes these two lives, and we get some pretty stunning uh, contrasts. Uh, I think... I think she added several points. A friend of mine who saw the show up in Oregon, she said uh, that this script had been altered a bit because of the present situation. We are, of course, facing the uh, congressional appointment. Uh, you know, the oh, the ninth justice is up uh, for venting. And, of course, uh, we know what that's going to uh what that's going to mean. Uh, oh, trumpery, trumpery. Uh, we know all about the threats to Planned Parenthood and uh, uh, the lives of Jane Roe. So interesting, her lawyer. Uh, what I liked was the, the fact that several of the cast members did an aside in which they, they mentioned what had become of them, you know, whether or not they found their way to Wikipedia years later. Uh, the man from Operation Rescue is a terrific actor. He's my favorite villain. Uh, the psychology of all these individuals is plenty of grist for the mill, for those of us who like to write plays and poems. Uh, it's always a question of whether or not Jane Roe was used either by her lawyers or by the people from Operation Rescue who recruited her later. Uh, why did Jane join the anti-abortion group? She died recently. Norma, that is. She died recently at the age of 69, I think, heart attack. Uh, it's hard to know whether she's the victim of her own immaturity. Nice word. It means that she wasn't self-aware, I guess. Um, <laughs> as Thomas Jefferson once said, if a nation wishes its citizens to grow up both ignorant and free and still be called civilized, then it wants what never was and never will be. Anyway, uh, whether or not Jane Roe was a victim of her own innocence, naivete, uh, I guess uh, the decision in her case, uh, well, it would surely not be reached uh, in time today. Let's see, the, uh, the dates for her abortion, of course, were were passed very quickly. Uh, the lawyers, I think, might have been guilty of disregarding her welfare. Uh, they wanted to win the case. She just wanted an abortion. She's pretty much focused on herself. Okay. Our Berkeley audience, of course, is politically aware of all the ambiguities and is certainly willing to have... Um, an evening in the theater devoted to a politically correct show that uses history for entertainment. Hamilton does the same thing. History buffs like me love this stuff because, uh, you know, uh, art is a weapon, as Bertolt Brecht told us. And uh, 
if you have the kind of imagination that's uh, needed in every generation, you will come to understand how it was that whether it's Hamilton in the 18th century or whether it's maybe uh, maybe that play by Clifford Odets, Waiting for Lefty. You remember when the audience became the people in the Union Hall? They all jumped up and ran out on strike. Yes, participatory stage plays. That's really something. Uh, the stuff on the screen, yes, it's it's terrific, but it's abstract and cold. Next time, uh, I'm going to talk about a play called Nora, written by uh, Angmar Bergman. It's an adaptation of Ibsen's A Doll's House. It's at Shotgun Players going this Sunday. How about that? This has been Jennifer Stone. Till next week at the same time, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Direct from Palestine. Using original music and dance, young people from Dehesha Refugee Camp will perform their stunning Debka dances. Plus, a dynamic girls' hip-hop show. Their name is Sharuk, which means sunrise in Arabic. This family-friendly event is at Oakland Tech Auditorium on Broadway at 42nd Street on Sunday, March 19th at 4 p.m. All info at www.meccaforpeace.org or 510-548-0542. This benefit for the Middle East Children's Alliance is wheelchair accessible and co-sponsored by KPFA. That's Sharuk Children's and Girls Hip Hop, Sunday, March 19th, 4 p.m. at Oakland Tech.